For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, and on this episode, a series of suspicious deaths on Montana Indian reservations shines a light on the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women. We'll discuss the Showtime documentary series, Murder in Bighorn. Join me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband, and yes, the love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of the Piper Green series of cozy mysteries, Laura Bricker. Hey, Laura. Hey, Rebecca. And finally, our resident Doubting Thomas, author of the City Trilogy, host of Strange Arrivals, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. All right. So, Kevin, obviously, this is Thursday's podcast. It is. What is coming up on Monday's show? On Monday, we're going to be talking about the podcast CSI on trial. Okay. What is that about? Well, it sounds like it's going after the uh, CSI the, effect. Yeah, the CSI effect and uh, forensics. And like, if, if you liked Monday's uh, podcast where we talked about admissible shreds of evidence or exhibit, was it exhibit A? Was that the name of the, the documentary series we talked about all those years ago? I mean, I think that, uh, we're going to we're going to get our rageathon going. All right, What's so- that guy in CSI with the great hair? I'm having a break. You know, the one in CSI Miami. The old guy with the red hair. I love him. The yeah, old guy. <laughs> oh, you mean David Caruso? David That's Caruso him. with yeah. all the openings. I'm going to go ahead and put one of those like song things in now where he takes off the sunglasses and says a thing. And he has like a phrase and it's like. I don't know. He's missing from the scene. Maybe he took off. Or maybe he got taken for a ride. All right, so speaking of the CSI effect, can I just make a quick plug for something? You sure can. It's Thursday show, but this past Monday dropped uh, the eighth episode and the final episode of Bear Brook season two. And I know that you know that I worked on this at my day job. I just want to say the final episode of this podcast, episode seven and eight, episode seven is about the science behind um, false confessions. It is an incredible standalone episode. Kevin, I know you listened to it. It is like people think, how could somebody confess to something that they didn't do? A murder that they didn't commit. Episode seven gets into that. It gets into the science behind it. And it really dissects it in a way that like I've never heard before, even though I've heard a million podcasts about it. Episode eight of Bear Brook, people have been asking like, how is this different than Undisclosed? How does it like get into the Jason Carroll case that's different and in a way that like Undisclosed gets into it? Episode eight of Bear Brook season two reveals how Robbie Chaudhry's coverage of the Jason Carroll case has changed the Jason Carroll case. Please, 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 please. Listen to episodes seven and eight of Bear Brook season two. Even if you listen to no other episodes of Bear Brook season two, trust me, those two episodes alone are, st- are standalone episodes. Kevin, would you or not agree? I agree. Okay. 
So, Kevin, should we not get into uh, the thing we're going to be talking about tonight? No, we should get into it. <laughs> okay. Because it's kind of a big deal and it's, it's kind of heavy. Yeah, sure. Let's go ahead and drop that first clip right now. Oftentimes, you'll see people walking up and down the interstate. And um, sometimes they don't come home. A teenager found in a field, another in a yard, another near a highway rest stop. They were the latest in a long line of deaths of Native women from Montana's Crow and Northern Cheyenne Reservations. Despite their suspicious nature, investigators failed to call the deaths crimes. This disregard for trying to provide answers to family members and that there can be an attempt to close out these cases, you know, close them out like they're done, you know, like it can ever be over. The incidents drew attention to the larger issue of Native American and First Nation women missing and murdered in the U.S. and Canada. The cases have been largely ignored by the media, met with law enforcement indifference, and inflicted pain on a marginalized community. These cases are not true crime stories to us. These cases are our relatives. Showtime's Murder in Bighorn asks questions about the deaths of Henny Scott, Kaysera Stops Pretty Places, and Selena Not Afraid, as well as the pattern of missing and murdered Indigenous women. It explores the many issues contributing to the problem, like historical colonization, economic inequities, sex trafficking, and the lack of consequences for violence against women by Native and white men alike. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Murder in Bighorn. So if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs-up or thumbs-down reviews. Kevin. Yeah. Your first note says, quote, this issue is a raging fire. What do you mean by that? This is, within the past five, six years, this has been an issue that has started to blossom in the public consciousness. It's starting to get tr- traction in the media, not not in small part to Connie Walker and her reporting uh, back with the, when she was with the CBC and that she continues to do. But when you just look at the sheer number of women from these communities that have gone missing or have been killed, it's like, how do you, how is this not a, you know, code three lights and sirens kind of issue. So it really deserves, it deserves attention in all the different ways that it can. So in that way, I'm glad that this documentary was made. I'd like to talk a little more about how this functions as a documentary itself, but this is just an issue that is not only urgent, but just baffling as to what is actually going on here. Yeah. So Toby, your first note to me has uh, one phrase repeated three times. Do you want to just read that to me? Uh, It just says white supremacy, white supremacy, white supremacy. Yeah. So what do you mean by that? I mean, I don't think you need to elucidate too much, but they give many examples of that in the documentary, right? I mean, where you start from the beginning, right? I mean, you start with, you know, manifest destiny or whatever. They, They give a lot of historical context between Manifest Destiny, uh, Indian boarding schools, you know, so on and so on. But then it's also, you know, it's, I mean, this whole, this whole uh, show is just rife with it. An example being when the coroner, who is also the town mortician, which 
seems weird, but uh, as Kevin and I know from reading Radley Balco's book several years ago, that's not an uncommon combination is to have those two have the corner also be a mortician. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact that this this guy, uh, he cremated uh, Kesara's remains without the family's permission. And as a matter of fact, he would have or should have known that they would not give him permission because that is not the way that the crow uh, people deal with their family members who have passed on. So again, it's, it's just this absolute disregard for native American people. And I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but also sort of a product of sort of the, what they, they talk about how the board part of the culture of the border town is violence against native Americans. Now, Laura, you left a note about that, too, because there are interviews, graphics, videos, anecdotes, like the whole series just gives this visual representation of this issue, right? Yeah. And I think it really comes through when you, you know, look at the map. They did a great job with those graphics of the maps. And you're seeing like, I think it was like I-90 and, you know, it's going through and you're seeing the border of the interstate and you're seeing the border of the reservation and the town even and then it like zooms in on the street view on the graphic and then down into the streets and you're seeing how close these two worlds are and and just that it's just part of the culture this violence and at some point I can't remember who it was says like really what the fuck what the fuck is going on here and I was like amen to that but I think when you when you hear about the women, you know, going over the border and being enticed with like free drugs and alcohol and then how, you know, and this is in the beginning of the documentary, we're hearing about that, that they're going over and they're, you know, basically being sold to the highest bidder. These women are very vulnerable and they're obviously not in their right minds. Uh, they're under the influence. You've got one person whose mother was an addict who had meth induced schizophrenia. So I think it really came through to me in that first, you know, in the beginning of this, just how, you know, much a part of this area of the country, how people are just sort of used to this happening there. And as a result, it continues. So, Kevin, this documentary isn't really an investigation, right? No, it feels more like a meditation a bit on the issue because we look at these three deaths and, you know, I can't really say, I mean, they, they do talk a little more about uh, Selena Not Afraid's, they give sort of more time to, to that one. But well, she was the woman who had more press attention, got an immediate response attention. Said that of the three, that, that like, I think they said that that was the one that, you know, that was the bonfire, you know, uh, Henny's was the kindling and, you know, that was the, the metaphor. Uh, but yeah, that was sort of the fir- one of the first times that it sort of got the tension at least within the region that it deserved and it started getting the New York Times and whatnot. It certainly doesn't get the same attention as a, uh, you know, pretty white girl that goes missing. But this was important as far as sort of like a true crime investigation. It doesn't really doesn't really do that, especially, you know, it spends also a lot of time examining the different cultural issues that might be contributing to this whole issue of all these women disappearing. And that, so that was good. So, I, you know, I guess I'm wondering even if the term murder in Bighorn is a little bit of a misnomer, because if it's, we're just looking at these three, certainly one of them 
did look like it was suspicious, although it was just undetermined. I would say, and I know if you know if you guys agree or whether it even really matters, but I feel like the Selena Not Afraid case is not a homicide that they spent a lot of time sort of getting into conspiracy fish issues and like they have reason to not believe the police and 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 you know that white was where the body was discovered in a place that was being searched. People were like they would have the found stage her. For us, yeah, not far. Yeah, should have found her sooner. But the idea that maybe, you know, she was killed someplace else and then dragged back to that place in the middle of the search, it just, everybody could be lying to them, sure. You know, the autopsy found no sign of violence, no sign of trauma. All of the all of the indications about, like, how she behaved with the hypothermia, we see that exact thing play out in the White Mountains here. It, it just does have to be in the middle of the plains. Both of the sheriff and undersheriff try to convince her they missed it. They try to convince people in the helicopters they missed her. No, if she was there, you would see her because of where she's laying. She's not hidden. Isn't the idea that her victimology puts her in a position where that would Absolutely. have happened? Now, that is a legitimate point, right? When you, when you look at the, the commonalities between at least these three cases is that they were underage drinkers. They were taken to places, even though with uh, Selena, it was sort of like the next okay, day. Okay, pause there they, for a second. What? Underage drinkers, every underage person is... Yeah. Is a drinker, okay? First oh, okay. of all, all right, fine. okay. Second, but, yeah, vulnerable, exactly, because they are preyed upon and undervalued by their community uh, yes. and the community. Yeah. But that that is, they are their victims. Yeah, yeah, they're victims from when they are born. Yeah. So, like, and there's a system that sort of sets yes. up that puts them in a position. Teenage at risk girls already. in our yeah. town are underage drinkers. They're way less fucking likely to be found up dead of hypothermia in a field. Right. That's the point. Yeah. Well, and I think I want to go back to what Kevin, that case Kevin was talking about, the Selena Not Afraid case and how that was different. What I thought was really interesting about that is that we hear about that case through the eyes of this newspaper woman who is from the area, who leaves and then comes back to report on what's happening in her community. Yes. And she has this very personal story, very poignant. You know, in 1977, her aunt froze in the snow. And died. As she said, she was just another dead Indian. So then she knows Selena because Selena went to school with her sons. So that was so, so, so it was a personal connection, which, you know, had been set up when she was talking about why she got into covering these cases. But she was also talking about how the response was with this case that happened before this with this girl who disappeared. And that was when they were talking a lot about the highway and how they thought women were being these these indigenous women were being picked up by truckers and trafficked and sex. And they just had like a, a, you know, a sign up for that woman, but there was no response. And then when now it's somebody within the community that is, you know, a, a, a girl that is more well known and you see all these law enforcement officers out there looking and you see the community out looking and you see this woman that's an attorney and she's going on the news talking about it and how they're hoping that this case is going to be a turning point in how law enforcement is responding to missing indigenous women. And, you know, I think that unfortunately then sets up even worse what we find out at the end for me, which was like, I was, I was a little disillusioned by sort of the takeaway that I had at the end of this um, after the setup here where we're like sex trafficking and murder and everything else. Yeah. So Toby, do you understand what I'm saying though? But we're like, even though I understand the drive of the journalists and the lawyers to like always like want to look for a murderer and a sex trafficker where it might be 
just that a girl ended up in a field dying of hypothermia, that's also a crime in its own way because like that wouldn't happen to a girl in a community like ours, right? Like the, these communities are so broken and and so like driven by like what like we have done to Indians in America that like we have set up the conditions especially for girls and women in these communities where like girls can just wander into a field and die. Like that's how I felt about this. Like I I felt like the reporter, you know, the mothers, the aunts, even in in a situation where like a girl may have wandered out into a field and died, they are still looking for a murderer or a sex trafficker. When I'm looking at it, I'm like, that's probably not what happened, but I'm like, there is still a crime here. You don't understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think it becomes kind of poignant at the end when I, when they talk to, I don't know if it's one or a couple of uh, native women talking about daughters and about trying to keep them alive essentially. Um, But yeah, I, I think the combination of, you know, extreme poverty Again, white supremacy, uh, racism, in uh, the things that poverty brings along with it, uh, substance abuse, things like that. And then when you add the jurisdictional issues in keeping Native women safe from uh, especially non-Native men who come on the reservation, makes it so that it's almost it's a very difficult to prosecute crime because the Native authorities cannot prosecute non-native people. But yeah, I mean, it's, you, you just have to look at the, the sort of side stories you hear. Cause I, I think it's, um, I think it's Selena who, who's lost. I think she's the third child who's died. Yeah. And that or fourth family, child yeah. who's died in that family. So when there's extreme poverty, that leads to all these other issues that result in early deaths. And then you add to that, these crime issues, these issues of racism, and then it's an unforgiving climate, right? I mean, people dying of hypothermia, that's, you know, wandering off and, and, and falling down and just not getting up again. So I I think there's, there's a lot of things that are going on here, but societally, like you were saying, Rebecca, I mean, it's, you know, things are really, are really stacked against people. And I, and they don't get into this a whole lot, but I think with the newspaper reporter, she does talk about leaving the reservation and then coming back. And I think that's like another part of it too. It, it's sort of the, the it, it's hard to get away. So Kevin, there's no graceful way to transfer into the business section. No, why don't we just say, let's talk about some business. <laughs> yeah, there's just no graceful way to do it. So like we are going to go into the business section now with no graceful or funny transition. So why don't we go ahead and talk about what's in our Patreon right now? All right. Well, we've got some great news. And ever since we announced this on Monday, people have been going crazy. Uh, we're going to be having a new Patreon level for supporters. If you uh, if you join the level, then you can get all episodes, all new episodes of Crime Writers on, ad free yeah. and business section free. So wait, you're so, saying people have been going crazy for this? Like they've been really like clamoring for I it? I have ever since I said it. They don't want to hear every, this part where we're like doing this. 
Well, I know there are people who are heartbroken at the uh, the prospect, <laughs> but they're like, you know, if Kevin does another horrible transition from a terrible murder case into talking about leave it to Bricker, <laughs> I'm just going to, you know, poke my eye out with a fork. My ear out with a spoon. That, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, this is what we have. Yeah, you get to miss all of this good stuff. Although sometimes there's, there's like wacky stuff that happens here, but you get to miss all of it at this new Patreon level. You do. Yeah. You should pay for that yeah like you're gonna miss out like me talking about how a cat's butt just <laughs> got Laura's camera literally just interrupted our whole business <laughs> yeah this is the what you're paying for you're paying to miss this all right so kevin yeah, I, I like the idea that we're charging people to get less of us <laughs> if you want less of us if you want a more efficient if you want like absolutely none of us you just pay zero <laughs> if you want Go a more away. efficient yeah. version of this show Plus everything else we have to offer. Also, if you want to make sure that our show can keep... You would, you know how you should sell, Kevin? Tell me. We're not making a lot of money making this show. <laughs> so if you want to make it so we can keep making this show, plus you want an ad-free version of this show, plus you don't want the business section, then you should join this new level, right? Absolutely. That's what I was thinking. Thanks for that. You know what? I think you should do the business section from now on. I don't think so. No, I'm just going to public radio so I can pitch. Okay, you do that. So uh, we do want to let you know that if you join us, you go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media, and you will get all sorts of other stuff like the Crime Writers on After Show, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker podcast. Who could forget the time that Laura Bricker found a cat cafe and visited oh. it? And was yes. surprisingly disappointed. Surprisingly disappointed when I paid $14 to sit with a cat when I can sit with my own cats for free. Yeah. Kind of like skipping the business section, right? Mm-hmm. You, you don't have to pay to do that. You can just skip over it. Other things going on in Crime Writers on World. Do want to let you know that, uh, and I forgot to mention this last week, but we have our new episode of These Are the Stories Out Right Now. We're looking at special SVU episode, season two, episode four, Legacy. This was one. We had a great performance by the late Richard Belzer. Mm. And Rebecca, who was our guest? Bob Ruff. Bob Ruff from Truth and Justice. Yes. By the way, did everybody know that Bob Ruff is an aspiring stand-up comedian? He is. I mean, for real, I'm not saying like he's just a joker. I'm saying that like he actually will get on stage and do stuff. He will. And he's very like self-deprecating about it. He's very much like people tell me I'm funny. I know I'm not always funny. People keep saying I am, so I keep trying. Yeah. He's so lovely, by he's the a, way. Yeah, he was great. He he's was great. He's the like, loveliest guy. So, Kevin, before we end the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Julio Ortiz and Carmen Sanchez. All right. Bless you. Julio and Carmen. Thank Don't you. step on my bless you. <laughs> Julio and Carmen. Thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon. Thank you for those who do. Thank you for those who don't. And maybe if you join us at our new level, you'll never have to hear this again. All right. So, Kevin, should I fade the music out right now? Fade the music out. Go ahead and do that right now. I want to talk a little bit about law enforcement in this episode. Kevin, we heard from a white undersheriff in this Mm -hmm. episode who does not believe that the phenomenon of missing and murdered indigenous women is real. Thoughts? Oh, that guy. I mean, we see him at first and he's talking about the Selena not afraid case. All right. And in the end, I kind of come down on 
his side of this about whether or not this was a crime. But to then equate that by saying that the phenomenon of missing and murdered indigenous women is not a real thing just sucks. Because, yes, there are a lot. I mean, we're talking about so many different women. The circumstances for each are different. I Very mean, so, different. I mean, right. I mean, some when we, when we break this down, like these different things, sometimes it is people coming out on the reservation and feeling like they can get away with it. Sometimes it's a, an exaggerated form of domestic violence from people that uh, the women know or, or, or love. Sometimes it is death by misadventure, right? Because you're right. If you do happen to, you know, go to sleep outside or pass out or something like that, mother nature is unforgiving there. But to say that, and then just sort of just brush aside because maybe in this one case, no, there is no evidence of a crime. Therefore, all this other stuff is bullshit. It's just astounding. It's just an astounding bit of horrible logic. And I was just taken aback by that. If there's one way to make yourself look bad instantly, it's to say something like that. You know, it's the white man doing this to us. If it doesn't fit that, they don't want to know the truth. Selena Not Afraid is just a prime example of that. Working in Bighorn County, I don't believe MMIW is real. I don't think the issue is real. I'll even say that what you described as death by misadventure, I mean, like I said before, it's also a crime. Because the circumstances that led Certainly to it these are case, yeah. fucking criminal. Yeah, there are people that you know right? could have yeah, like, done something. White supremacy has led to the situations that led to the, quote, like misadventure that led to these women dying. Right. And I think that's the whole point of this. You know, it's a Laura. You made a note about the history is incorporated into this. We see a lot about, you know, the residential schools in this documentary. Mm-hmm. They include that. They include how, you know, the one thing that they don't, I think, really do a good job of is showing the history of like the reservations themselves, like the sort of divided land and I mean, they talk about the jurisdictional issues, but they don't talk about, you know, the reservation history itself, how like, you know, what the United States divided up as territories. They show the territories themselves on a map. Right. But they also but they do do a good job of showing the residential schools and there are a shit ton of photos from those residential schools. And they do tell a story and those, that story is criminal, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's basically like when you look at the photos in some of them, you don't even real, realize that these are indigenous children in the schools. What, are they, what is the expression? Kill the Indian, save the man. Kill the Indian, save the man. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like you can you look at like just the pictures and you look at the hairstyles and you look at the clothing and then you hear the stories. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, they kind of go back to like, this story that we all heard in history class and then was glorified in like a Disney movie, Pocahontas and John Smith and how that wasn't a love story. This wasn't really what was happening there. So there was a lot of interesting history incorporated. Again, we've heard about the residential schools, mostly through Connie Walker and that was hearing about it. But like you said, Rebecca, seeing the pictures, that was very powerful. I think that kind of gives you a different type of awareness of what was happening at these schools. Um, but I mean, now this is kind of a, a segue sort of sideways from that is that I feel like this documentary, when we said Murder and Bighorn wasn't really an accurate title, at, at times I'm not sure it knew what it wanted to be because I like I feel like this history was interesting 
but it broke the flow of this narrative. Uh, like, I feel like it would have been more effective if we had told the story in a different way through these three episodes, because sometimes there'd be like, and here's this side tangent about the history. And here's this side tangent about something else that happened. And I mean, I think that was interesting and it was good information, but I feel like the narrative could have been more powerful if it had been structured a little bit differently. Um, so yeah, I was glad to hear that history and I was glad to see those pictures, but overall, sometimes I wondered kind of what was the point of some of the way that they were telling the story. Yeah. So Debbie, I want to come back to you because I was talking to Kevin a minute about law enforcement and one character that we hear about over and over again is the sheriff. We hear from two undersheriffs here. We hear from the former undersheriff and the current undersheriff, who is the father of one of the victims who claims he's not appearing in the documentary as the current undersheriff, but as the father of one of the victims who may or may not have molested his daughter, who's also one of the victims in the documentary. So the I feel like the sheriff is this sort of like cloud in the documentary and law enforcement is kind of like with the jurisdictional issues and everything is this kind of like, Cloud. I mean, I don't know whether either way I put it, like just sort of hanging over this whole thing, right? Everyone's talking about it, but we don't really get to interact with it except for an ex and a current who won't acknowledge his place in the department, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it was striking to me that the sheriff, who is, I believe, from the Crow Nation, first he had an under sheriff who's a white guy who you know, when you see him, not only is he kind of denying uh, the missing and murdered element, which is just, it, it it seems ridiculous because I guess you don't really hear him talking, but you hear a whole bunch of other people talking about people going missing, people walking on the side of the road and getting, you never see him again and trucks coming through. I mean, it's the, that's the whole backdrop is that there's this sort of litany of, of, of girls who are, who are missing or, or found dead. So you've got him. And then he also talks about like when the family's trying to get involved and like trying to shed some uh, publicity on the case. And he's like, oh, they're just trying to get their 15 minutes of fame. Like he has no sympathy for them. He just basically thinks they're being pains in the ass and they're being, you know, they're after fame. They're trying to cash in on this. So he just seems as though he has kind of disdain for the community. So he fires that guy. I, it's not a hundred percent clear why. I mean, nobody, he, that guy is just like, yeah, he could fire me. So I said, fine. And I moved to Idaho, but he's clearly scared. Cause he, he basically says, you know, now I'm in Idaho, they can't get at me. So I'll talk to you. And then, but then the guy he follows up, it's Selena's father, estranged father who actually, um, I believe there was a, uh, a restraining order against him being around her. Mm-hmm. Her case is still open and he gets named as the new undersheriff, which, you know, it's just seems like a mind boggling sort of choice, especially given how high profile relatively to what else is going on there. Selena's case is. So again, it, it's hard to draw like big conclusions based just on what we see in the documentary, but there does seem he seems to have an odd stance towards the Crow Nation's safety based on these decisions that he's making for who he wants to be sort of his second in command. And then that just compounds these other jurisdictional issues 
about whether the the Bureau of Indian Affairs has jurisdiction. The FBI sometimes can have jurisdiction on the reservation, but it's usually only for major crimes or you have to ask them to come in. Um, and if it's, you know, white people on the reservation who are doing something, then there's really no jurisdiction over them. So it's just, it's, it's kind of a nightmare uh, and it's not made any better, it seems, by the leadership of the sheriff's office. There seems to be this agreement among men, white men, crow men, that these women don't matter. I mean, that seems to be what the women are saying, right? Yeah. I mean, the question at the heart of this is who devalued the lives of indigenous women and who continues, who has internalized that lesson and continues to believe it. And I think it's different parts. But, yeah, as far as individuals, strangers and intimate people with the different victims feel like nobody feels like they can't get away with it. Yeah. Right. I mean, why did Jack the Ripper go into Whitechapel and target prostitutes because he believed that these were people who were marginalized and no one's going to miss them. No one's going to care. And we have this whole community of people, you know, thousands and thousands of people that we'd say, oh, white society devalues them and that there's so much inequity within their own community that there's indifference there, too. And so that nobody gets in trouble for killing a Native American woman. Literally nobody. And that, that includes people who come on the property who come on the reservation seeking to exploit that because and the legal no loopholes. Jurisdiction. That includes husbands and boyfriends and intimate lovers who kill and then dispose of the body. Uh, you know, it's like no one cares if you bring a bunch of people over to a to but a. But also, uh, even if a girl just dies, other women are indifferent. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a lot of different things. But the like, the thing is, now I'm not saying all other women are yeah. indifferent. Some other women women are like, like don't put yourself i mean we hear a lot of people that care well i think that was one of the things they said at the end of that that was the takeaway that i was referencing earlier that i found so like to me i was like oh this is so depressing it was like native women see other native women as disposable because it's so ingrained in their culture yep and i was like oh god this is horrible and not where i thought the story was going but that was kind of like one of those like that kind of left me almost speechless at the end when that was put out there. I'm sorry. That's just something that women do. Like we, and by the way, I'm not comparing myself as a white woman to a native woman at all. But as a woman, like period, you just kind of accept that like, I mean, I remember being young and being like, all right, this is like what happens to me now. And if that happens to her, That's what happened to her. And that's what also happens to me. So that's what it is. I can imagine being like in a situation where like I am a hundred times more marginalized and feeling like, okay, that's what happened to her. That's what also happens to me. If you are an indigenous person, like that is a jillion times magnified. It's not surprising at all. And I don't judge it at all. Like I cannot imagine a situation in which that wouldn't be the case. And I don't, I don't, and I, like, these are, these people are 100% not to blame for this. It is, it is white people's fault, period, for all of it, for all of it. Yeah. I mean, when you say it's it's their culture, I mean, it's, it's the culture as of, you know, 120 years ago or something, because the culture was very matriarchal. I mean, they go into this in the, in the, in the documentary and that a very, calculated aspect of 
the United States sort of entry into their territory and subjugation of them was violence and sexual violence against women. I'm sure partly the misogyny and then partly because those were leaders and that, and that's how you uh, attack a population is you attack their leaders. You, you instill in their leaders a sense of despair. And that's just, you know, I don't know how you live with the mortality rates that a place like that has without it affecting your ability to adequately mourn death after death after death in your community, um, especially when they're following a pattern. Unfortunately, it seems to follow <laughs> where there's colonization. It's, you know, in Australia, the deep dive, we did a book called Tall Man. It's very, very similar situation in uh, these sort of Aboriginal reservations in Australia. Um, it's when, you, when you've shattered the culture, when there's great poverty, it comes with violence, premature death, substance abuse, all these things. And it's not a part of that culture. It's the stress of being taken out of your culture, put in a single geographical area, and then basically enforce poverty and being subjected to white supremacy you know, constantly. And sexual violence is a tactic of war and that is an accepted tactic of war. And like, it's still an accepted tactic of war today. And like, that's not something we can forget. It's brought up in this documentary and it is still an accepted tactic of war. And that is just like something that we can never forget, right? All right, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Murder in Bighorn, Laura Bricker? What do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this documentary on Showtime? I'm going to give this a mild thumbs up. And I, I think this is a really important issue. I liked this documentary. I felt like at times it struggled for me because the narrative didn't feel like it was super cohesive sometimes with like where we were going with the story because there was some sort of tangents that took away from what I thought was the main thrust of missing and murdered indigenous women and what was going on with them. And then it just sort of ended at the end of episode three. So, you know, I think I'm glad that Connie Walker, the standard bearer in this type of reporting, kicked off this type of reporting about this issue. I'm glad to see there are more that are taking it up. Um, I think this was interesting just from a visual perspective, getting a real sense of what it was like living in a border town. And then when you see, you know, footage of the reservation and you just see the poverty and it's startling when you see it on the screen. I think there were some interesting cases in this. Overall, I'm going to give this a thumbs up. Toby Ball, what do you think? Murder in Bighorn, thumbs up or thumbs down? Yeah, I'm a thumbs up. I Look, if you're, if you're coming into this thinking that you're going to see like a typical sort of true crime procedural, like this person was killed and then we follow these suspects and, you know, blah, 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 that you see all the time. Like this doesn't really do that. I mean, what it really is is sort of a picture of a culture and a situation, which is, you know, essentially the Crow Reservation in Montana and how that situation leads to the death or disappearance of Crow girls and, and, and young women. And so it's, you know, as far as it is like sort of true crime and where there is crime, a lot of it's just is, is historical crime. And it's what we as a country have done with the people who lived in these areas, putting them on reservations, 
sort of fracturing their society, you know, enforced poverty, all, all these things. I, I think that's really the thrust of the documentary. And the stories themselves are very poignant, but as to whether they are sort of what we're used to in, in, in most of the true crime stuff we do, which is this person was murdered, what happened? I, I think you have to look a little bit to the next thing. It's like, what, what are the conditions that lead to the life of a young crow woman being so, so, so dangerous? So anyway, I, I, I actually, I really liked it and I give it a, a strong thumbs up. Kevin Flint. Unfortunately, I have to go thumbs down. Really? Not, not because the issue isn't important, like I said that it is. I think just as a documentary, and I think Laura's kind of hinting at this too, that I don't think this is like a really great example of persuasive storytelling in the sense it kind of lingers too long on certain beats. It feels like it's got some filler in it. I mean, just we saw like a bunch of the same sound bites from episode to episode. It just three seemed too long for me. All of it was important. I thought that the historical perspectives were really great, and it gave me something to think about. And if that's what you want, then maybe you should go ahead and watch it. But for me, it's I, I don't. I really can't recommend it on its merits. Like Connie Walker is just sort of like the expert in this area. Her work is so good because. She talks about like crimes resulting from the issues, right? So, you know, whether it's a scoop or the residential stories, just the point is that her work is superior because these stories continue to move forward and continue to tell a narrative. And I just felt like this was kind of running in place a little bit. In other times, I was just kind of like, okay, can we can we move on to the next thing here? Because I, I felt like we were just going back and forth over some stuff and it could have been told, I thought, better. So while... You know, whenever this comes up as an issue that we cover in true crime, and I say it again, this issue is the house burning down. But I just don't feel like, unless maybe you're absolutely new to this topic, I don't feel like this was a great documentary. All right, so I'm giving this a thumbs up. I think it was named improperly. And I think that's why you're giving it a thumbs down, Kevin. I'm sorry. No, but go ahead. Okay. Uh, it was not about a murder in Bighorn. That's why. I believe if I was expecting a murder in Bighorn and that was the only criteria upon which I was going to grade it, I'd be like, there was, you know, there were fewer murders in Bighorn than the title promised. That being said, comparing it to Connie Walker's work, okay, Connie Walker did Missing and Murdered, two incredible seasons. She did Stolen, The Search for Jermaine, and Stolen, Surviving St. Michael's, two incredible seasons that were very focused, right? This series is actually much more nuanced for me. It's kind of about that line where the MMIW stories are sometimes murders and they're sometimes not, but they are all crimes. And I actually find that to be really interesting. The one critique I have is that the series doesn't actually tell us that, like, I had to kind of get to that conclusion myself in a way that, like, I don't think a lot of people would because people don't have that kind of patience. And I think that in an issue like this, I think that there hasn't been enough media yet where viewers, I think, need maybe a little bit more guidance for that kind of underlining to happen. So I actually think this was, you know, maybe a little bit lugubrious but I, I do think there was enough nuance here. And I, I just, 
I don't know. I sort of really like the fact that cases were highlighted where it wasn't clear because those cases are also really important. I don't know. I got I cannot give this a thumbs down. It's a thumbs up for me for murder and bighorn. I guess I'm just going to leave it at that. All right. That's going to do it for us. But before we go, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? We have breaking news about a cat of the week. Did one of them die? No. <laughs> Thanks to our friend Chris Joyner. I now the know AGC. that the AGC now has a dog of the day feature. What? What? He says he had nothing Wait, to stop, do with it. Stop it. What does Bill Rankin say about that, Kevin? Hi, I'm Bill Rankin. This is my dog, Puddles. Of the day. He's the dog of the day, but only for today. <laughs> do you know there's 24 hours in a day? Do you know that Puddles is named Puddles because he leaves Puddles? That's why I have a newspaper, so he can piss on it. <laughs> oh, no. What well, is the dog of the day in the AJC, Lara? Um, I'm going to tell you. It says cats are accepted on a cat-by-cat basis. But here is the dog of the day. So the lobbying at the Capitol has become fast and furious, and they are not talking about legislation. Indeed, State House and Senate members launched a campaign Thursday to name Bader, the adorable American Stratfordshire Terrier, as dog of the day. And we are ready to cast our votes in favor of this pup. Bader is, of course, short for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Holland, the first dog of House District 54. Bader has been calling state rep so-and-so, her person in Atlanta, since they adopted her. So the dog, Bader, is, uh, and Bader is sitting in front of some political signs. But yeah, Chris Joyner, dog of the day. I want to see more cats of the day. I have a question. Who Mm -hmm. at the AJC pitched this dog of the day feature to the AJC? That's what I'm wondering myself. Hi. Dog of the I day. listen to this podcast where they talk about cats. <laughs> I got to get back at them. So let's steal that great idea. I'm just saying <laughs> a pet of the period of time is a really great feature to have in yeah. your publication. Yeah. To get audience engagement to engage with you, to send you things that you can then highlight in your Yes. Piece of media. They wouldn't be the first yes. person to rip that segment off of us. So. It it is not the first person to write that segment off yeah. of us. Uh, and by the way, good for or you. Or made a AJC. whole lot more money. Yeah. Yes. Or to make a whole lot more money off that segment of us. All right, Laura Bricker. If folks want to pitch to you or perhaps rip off of you our segment of the week, yeah, I know. How can they find you on social media to do such things? Uh, they can find me at Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, if folks want to reach out to you and perhaps I don't know take photos of you to make memes of you doing the eye rolls that you like to do for us when they see you on our podcast how can they find you on social media <laughs> they can find me at toby ball and h but <laughs> what they could you. also do you're also just putting your hands on your nose right now like you do when you just don't want to deal with us <laughs> uh is that is that my tell <laughs> yeah you, you do this you put your hands on your sinuses <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, but I was going to say uh, Strange Arrivals uh, episode five. Hell yeah. Just dropped uh, in your podcast feeds yesterday and it's still there. Uh, it's fire. So if you want to listen to that and, uh, you know, let me know what you think, you can do that at Toby Ball and H as well. 
How can people find you, Kevin Flynn? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. If I've gotten over my insomnia, I will tweet you back. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers on, and I encourage. I feel you to- like you, you should still have insomnia to tweet at people because, like, if you're because if you're asleep without the insomnia, you're not going to be tweeting. That's people. true. You can also enjoy our incredible community in our official Crime Writers on Facebook discussion group. We also have regular old Facebook page. Just go there, hit join the group. We'll let you in. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media you get the crime writers on after show married with podcast laura bricker's leave it to bricker podcast and toby ball's deep dive book club podcasts our theme song was composed and performed by ty gibbons our line editor is the wonderful livy burdett the executive producer of this fine program is kevin p flynn This show was recorded in the Treehouse Yoga Studio above the Mockingbird Cafe in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio, otherwise known as Studio C, The Closet, in our New Hampshire studio where we punch anyone in the face who says MMIW is not a real thing. Dick! On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you Later. later. The COVID starts in your nose, right? That's why you swab up there because that's where it's concentrated. So if you think you're getting it and you snort stuck the iodine up there, you're going to kill it. No ivermectin, just the iodine up the nose. Are we ready? (laughs) Let's put that in the podcast. You're really up our credibility. Yep. All right. I'll just blast it with bleach. All right. I have two jugs of iodine if y'all want some. A neti pot. Let's neti pot out the COVID. Partners in Crime Media.